Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Naomi Oreskes, the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. Oreskes is the author or co-author of seven books and over 150 articles, essays, and opinion pieces, including Merchants of Doubt from 2010, The Collapse of Western Civilization from 2014, uh, Discerning Experts from 2019, why Trust Science from 2019, and Science on a Mission, American Oceanography from the Cold War to Climate Change, forthcoming in April of 2021. In 2018, Professor Oreskes was named a Guggenheim Fellow for a new book project with Eric Conway, The Magic of the Marketplace, The True History of a False Idea, forthcoming from Bloomsbury Press. On March 12, 2021, Naomi Oreskes will give a virtual lecture, Can Science Be Saved?, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Crestman Lecture in the Humanities. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome, pleasure to be with you. So Lord, with a, a, a background question, what led to your interest in history of science? How did you become a historian of science? Well, I started out as a scientist, but I always had rather broad interests and I used to feel slightly ashamed and embarrassed. I read novels and uh, you know philosophy and religion and things like that. I used to view that that was sort of something slightly to be ashamed of and hide because in science you are supposed to do all science all the time. Uh, but in graduate school, I decided to take a philosophy of science class just out of interest, thinking that I would be a well-informed scientist and discovered the class was actually taught by a historian of science. I didn't at the time know that the field of history of science existed. Many people still don't know it exists. And that was my eureka moment because I realized that it was a field in which I could engage my interest in science as an intellectual activity, trying to understand the world and all its complexity, but also think of it in a broader sense in its cultural and social and economic context. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. So tell us why the history of science is important. Why do we need historians of science? Why is that a good thing for, for scholars to be doing? Well, I think this year has been, a, well, we know this year has been a tragedy in many respects, but from the point of view of what I do, it's really proved the point. I mean, I've been making this case for a long time, so have all my colleagues, that to solve society's problems, it's not enough to just have science alone. The technical component is crucial. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And many of us have been saying this for a long time. Many of us have been saying that many of the problems that we face in our society and that we have not solved or adequately addressed could be better addressed if we took more seriously the full panoply of its dimensions. And COVID has brought that home tragically because, I mean, this, you know, if I had invented a hypothetical thought experiment to prove the point, COVID-19 is it. More than 500,000 American people are dead now. And the death rate in this country is way greater than most other countries in the world, including other countries that are similar to us in other respects, having a well-developed scientific infrastructure being basically a wealthy country, being basically an educated country, having tremendous manufacturing capacity, having tremendous information technology capacity. And we have made a complete hash of this. And why have we made a hash of it? Not because the science wasn't there. We understood this science back in February. And look, our scientists have done an unbelievable job in creating a, an extraordinarily effective vaccine in an astonishingly short amount of time. So the scientists have done their job. They've done what we asked them to do, but we can't get our people vaccinated because we're disorganized, because people are vaccine hesitant because of the long history 
of problems in our medical establishment because we have a fragmented and disorganized medical system. These are all social, cultural, and economic problems. These have nothing to do with biology. So our failure to control this virus is exactly why it's not enough. The science alone doesn't help us solve our, well, it helps us, but it doesn't solve our problems. We need to understand the human and the cultural dimensions. We need to understand why don't people wear masks? I mean, think about it. Asking a person to put on a mask is such a small ask. It costs almost nothing, pennies to buy a paper mask. Uh, it takes three seconds and it does, it inhibits you almost not at all. And yet people don't want to do that. So why is that? And the answer to that has nothing to do with the natural science, the biology, but has everything to do with culture and politics and identity. So you've devoted much of your recent uh, work to this problem of the distrust of science among the American population. And you've, you've just already pointed us in the direction of my question. So what are some of the sources for that distrust? Where is that coming from? If, if the scientists are doing their jobs, why aren't we getting it? Well, it's a complex problem and there isn't just one answer, but the biggest part of it or the shortest answer I can give you is that people have actually been actively trying to get us to just trust science. And that was the subject of Merchants of Doubt. Uh, Eric Conway and I spent you know, five years, 10 people years uh, exploring this, trying to understand why anyone would reject the evidence of man-made climate change. The scientific evidence is very clear. We have an enormous amount of work done by excellent scientists across the globe. We have evidence from you know, 10 or 15 different subspecialties, but yet we knew that a very significant number of the American people didn't believe that climate change was real and caused by people. And we had political leaders right up to the president of the United States. And remember, we started this book uh, back in the days of George W. Bush. Uh, and uh, Dick Cheney, and you know, I have huge respect for Lynn Cheney, and I think she's a hero, but it's important for us to remember that her father, uh, not her fault, but her father went around telling people that there was no consensus on the human contribution to climate change. So we were told for a very long time by powerful and influential people that we should distrust climate science. And what Eric and I discovered, and what I, I thought, you know, kind of was the big discovery we made that no one really was talking about at that time, and almost no one except for a handful of people even realized that the same people who wanted us to distrust climate science had told us to distrust the science that told us that smoking could kill us or that acid rain could damage forests and kill fish or that the ozone hole was real. And that this was a pattern and it wasn't an isolated example but it was a pattern of corporate America aligned with right-wing political ideology to actively deliberately foment distrust in science. And that has now spilled over because like any monster, you know, it's like the Frankenstein monster. They let this monster out um, and now it's doing damage in all kinds of ways that I'm sure they didn't actually intend. Do you, and what, I mean, do you have hope that, that we can address this monster to, to, no, to kill like, the monster? I'm just gonna quit and spend the rest of my life skiing. <laughs> you know? Well, of course, on some levels, this is a really tough, challenge, right? And, you know, it's a, this job is hard. I always say, you know, I, I forbid my students from using the term hard science, because I always remind them the really hard part is figuring out people, right? You know, so we can call physics and chemistry exact sciences, and we can respect their exactness. But what we do is even harder. So of course, I have hope or I wouldn't do what I do. And I think the hopeful part, well, there, there are several grounds for hope. So one important point that I make in the book, Why Trust Science, the one that you mentioned came out last year, is that actually, if you look closely, 
And if you pay attention, not just to social media and headlines, but actually look at the public opinion data, we find that the vast majority of Americans still do trust science. In fact, they have a very high regard for science uh, and medicine. They are much more likely to trust a scientist, a doctor, or a nurse than a politician or a journalist or a member of Congress. So there actually is a very, very high level of trust in science. And I think that makes sense because as I said at the onset, scientists do their job. I mean, most scientists have done a really good job. They've created a vaccine that works against COVID-19. They've told us what causes climate change uh, and so many other things that we can mention. But, you know, we're up against this now legacy of distrust in certain parts of the American uh, culture, American community, and the persistent disrespect and disregard of science by some political and economic leaders who should know better. And so that's the challenge to identify what the real problem is. And it's crucial that we do diagnose it correctly because if, we, if people think the problem is the American people, well, first of all, it's unfair to the American people who are actually intelligent and mostly paying attention by and large. And it gives you the wrong diagnosis, right? Because if you think the problem is the American people, then you think you have to get out there and do some kind of mass, I don't know, mass education or mass, I don't know, indoctrination or whatever. But that's actually not what the problem is. What you really need to do is to explain to people that they've been the victims of a con game. And so that was, you know, when we made Merchants of Doubt into a film a few years after the book came out, that was sort of the insight we had when we kept coming back to, well, well what is it we really want to say to this about this to the American people? Now that we've explained what this thing is and who these people are, and what we realized after, you know, a lot of back and forth and a lot of hard work with our filmmaker, Robbie Kenner, was that no one wants to be on the losing end of a con. And if you can show people that this is actually a con game, that it's hurting them and it's costing them money, and ExxonMobil is laughing all the way to the bank. That's a wake-up call for a lot of people. And so that's been part of our work is sort of to, to identify it, to call it, to name it and shame it, and then to say, but there are remedies, right? We don't have to be fooled. We're not idiots. And the information we need is available. And anybody has any questions about the science, you want to talk about the troposphere, you know, anyone needs me to do a quick explanation of how we know it's not volcanoes. Like I can do that, right? We can answer all those scientific questions and in answering them, then we can say, but we have to figure out a way to address the political and the cultural dimension. And that's the part that where we failed because we have the scientific information we need by and large, but what we haven't been able to figure out is how to break the political logjam and how to persuade people that no, you know, a mask is not a threat to your personal freedom and focusing on fixing climate change can actually make our lives better, right? We can have, just as, our, you know, the electricity from photovoltaics is just as good. I always like to say, my, you know, the light in my home is all PV and the light shines just as brightly as it did before, but I'm not contributing to climate change and it doesn't cost me any more money. And the same, you know, if Eric Conway were here, he could wax prolific about his wonderful Tesla, which drives faster and better than any internal combustion car he ever had. And yes, it was expensive, but the prices are coming down rapidly. So I'm curious about, the role that you see, I mean, it's clear to me, like why the oil industry, why the fossil fuel industry might be resistant to, to but it seems to me that um, it's harder for me to understand why corporate America more generally would be complicit or at least not resisting this. And, and I'm also really interested in like the journalism profession. It seems to me that, you know, they, they're more interested in the controversy than in the truth. And 
what do you have to say about those kinds of a sort of larger collaborators who are not sort of leading the charge, but are facilitating this, this continued disinformation and this distrust? Yeah, well, so those are two different things. And there's actually a third component that's crucial to understand, which is the role of libertarian and right-wing think tanks, which are a really big part of this story. So when Eric Conway and I wrote Merchants of Doubt, that was the big question we wanted to answer. It's obvious why ExxonMobil would be reluctant to admit that their product is destroying the future for mankind and life on earth. That's not something that anybody really wants to admit to, just like the tobacco industry didn't want to admit that they were selling a product that was killing um, 7 million people every year. So we understand that, right? And they want to keep money and they want to keep selling these things. But why, the question that we posed was, why would anyone go along with that who didn't have an economic stake? And that's where this whole story of the right-wing and libertarian think tanks came into the picture. And what we discovered was that there was this universe that even today is still kind of shady, although there've been a number of good books written about it. Uh, Nancy McLean's Democracy in, in Chains, uh, Jane Mayer's Dark Money. This whole network of think tanks that promote free market fundamentalism, free market ideology, and they do it for a mix of reasons. It's complicated, but the sort of short version of the people we studied was that they, they had come out of the Cold War and they were deeply, deeply anti-communist. And they bought into an ideology. It's sort of neoliberalism, but it's not just neoliberalism. I think neoliberalism sort of collapses it too much and it, it's just that it's become a word that people just throw around and it's, you don't really know what they mean. But it was really this belief that if you allow the government to begin to interfere in the economic structure of a country, you are on a slippery slope to socialism. And this is the argument that was made by some key neoliberals like Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, and then later Milton Friedman. But, it's a, but for many people, it was a deep-seated anxiety in the 1950s and 60s. And for the scientists we studied, it was tied up with their own commitment to containing communism during the Cold War. And so it becomes a kind of extension of the containment argument. And again, this is where history is so crucial. If you understand history and you understand the containment argument, then you say, oh, okay, I kind of get it. It's not, I mean, they're not horrible human beings. Well, maybe some of them were, but they're not like all horrible, but they really have this real worry that we're gonna be sort of on this slippery slope or this backdoor to communism. Now, the error they made in my opinion was to say, therefore we deny the truth of this problem. Right, the correct thing to would have been say, wow, this is really serious. How can we figure out a way to fix this problem while still giving the American people and business as much freedom and flexibility as possible? That would have been the logical, sensible thing. And this is where the ideology comes in though. They say it became so entrenched in this sort of market fundamentalist ideology that they were actually unable to do that. And these were incredibly intelligent people. I mean, the people we wrote about emergence of doubt one of them had been the president of the US National Academy of Sciences. So it's not remotely plausible that they didn't understand the science or they weren't smart enough to think it through, but they really became trapped in this ideology. And so again, that's why, and that's why I'm excited to talk to you know, your group because this is a humanities problem, right? The role of ideology and the way ideology shapes our thinking and the way it can block us from actually thinking rationally about solutions to problems. And so they go down this road of denial and then they begin to make common cause with libertarian think tanks, other, I mean, so they create a think tank, the Marshall Institute, and then they make common cause with other libertarian think tanks like the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the Heartland Institute, and on and on and on. I mean, I could give you the names of 30 of these groups. 
Now, these groups are all funded by regulated industries. Uh, they're funded by fossil fuel industries or big pharma or telecommunications. So there's this sort of unholy alliance between corporate money and ideology. But there are many people, and I mean, I met some people affiliated with the Cato Institute. They do honestly believe that government represents a threat to personal freedom. And so it's that belief, this sort of commitment to personal freedom and this, the viewing government as a threat that then comes together and this nexus of money and ideology becomes very, very powerful. And then the Republican party kind of gets involved. And, and that's the new book that Eric and I are working on. Is so why did that idea, why did that idea of market fundamentalism that we should just trust markets to solve the problem? Why did that become so powerful that it led people actually to deny the obvious evidence of market failure in front of their face when it came to something like climate change or the opioid crisis or the lack of housing. I mean, there are so many examples we have in American society of things that are fundamentally market failures, problems that the marketplace left to its own device is unable or unwilling to solve. And that's part of why we have government to solve problems that need government to solve. But so many of these people have such a deeply entrenched anti-government ideology, which the Republican Party has been aligned with since Ronald Reagan, that they're unwilling to even have an honest conversation about what reasonable solutions could look like. And that's where we've been stuck in this country for the last 20 years. And that's the piece that we have to get unstuck. And that's the work of humanists and you know, historians and philosophers and social scientists, political scientists, I mean, this is work that's desperately important because if we don't figure this out, we will fail. I mean, we are kind of failing already. I don't like to say that because people hate it when I'm pessimistic and everyone wants me to be optimistic. Uh, so I'm optimistic because the possibility of solution is there. The technology to solve our problem is there, but we won't solve it if we can't also address these cultural dimensions. In this book that you're writing, The Magic of the Marketplace, the, the, the book you just alluded to, um, the subtitle is The True History of a False Idea. And you've just explained that there's all this evidence that's in front of our faces of the failure of this magical thinking about free markets. And you just uh, gave us a list of those examples. I mean, you've said ideology. Um, how, how, when th these uh, free marketeers are confronted with the opioid crisis or, you know, whatever piece of evidence the you know the 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 uh, crisis in the uh texas uh electric grid that's still going on how do they how do they account for that i mean what what are the strategies they use to uh, explain away this evidence that is so overwhelming so i would say there's three three major strategies um the first one is to actually say, oh yeah, we do need to look at this. And there are some people who do, and I really wanna give credit, I wanna give a shout out to people at the Niskanen Center in Washington, DC. I mean, this is a group of libertarians who at some point realized that climate change denial was a dark place. And they've been working really hard to say, okay, so we have our principles, we're basically libertarians, we'd like to have limited government. And so what is the smallest government solution that can solve this problem? So I have enormous respect for them. And I basically think that they're kind of right about that. I mean, one thing as a historian you always do that I think often people who don't like me don't understand about history or you know, my critics, let's say. I mean, the whole point of history is to understand why people do what they do. So I get the libertarian argument. I'm not, I don't think it's 
you know, idiotic, right? I get it. And I actually have come around to think that there's one really important insight that I think a lot of liberals and progressives could learn from. We should want in all things in our lives, the smallest solution that will work, right? I mean, if I need to plow the snow out of my driveway, I don't need to plow the whole town. I just need to plow my driveway, right? Or if I may need to make dinner, I want to put food on the table that's satisfying and healthy. I don't need to make a you know, five course dinner every night, right? Um, so it's the smallest solution that will work. And that's a really profound insight. And I think that's good. And I, and I applaud those folks. Sadly, there's not a lot of them. That's not the dominant reaction. And, and this is part of what I'm still trying to understand. Why isn't it? Because to me, that seems totally right. Um, and, and those folks could sit down with progressives and say, okay, well, you know, what's the, what's the middle ground? Or, or to the progressives, why are you trying to expand the solution if there's a smaller solution that will work? And then the progressives can push back and they could say, well, will it really work? Where's the evidence that this is going to be enough? Because this is a big problem and your small board solution might not be enough, right? But there's a real conversation that could take place there. It hardly ever does. Okay, so that's one. But the opposite extreme is denial. And that's what we've seen as the dominant response to just deny the problem, to say, I don't believe it. I'm not persuaded, I'm not convinced, you know, there's not enough evidence. And, and that can't be justified. I mean, it is denial straight and simple. And that's the trap of ideology. When you become so committed to your ideological position that you refuse to accept the evidence that refutes it. And, you know, that's the ultimate anti-scientific position. And of course, for me, that's so ironic too, because I was trained as a scientist. I am professionalized now as a historian, but historians are interested in evidence too, right? I mean, we may have a theory or a hypothesis about the past, but if the evidence, the data doesn't support it, we have to throw it out, right? And when, when Eric and I first started working on Merchants of Doubt, we really didn't know what the answer to our question was going to be. And when we realized that it was this market fundamentalist ideology, you know, that was kind of a eureka moment. And that was er actually Eric's discovery. And I remember him calling me or emailing me and saying he was reading George Soros and Soros had this term, market fundamentalism. And it was like, yeah, that is it. Okay, so that's denial. And then the third thing people do is, okay, so they recognize that denial is a dark hole and they don't quite want to go there. So they say, well, but the solution will be worse than the disease. So they minimize the problem, say, oh, we could just adapt or, you know, we'll wait for technology to fix it. There'll be a breakthrough. Uh, you know, we could do fourth generation nuclear power. I mean, they come up with things that, you know, maybe yes, sort of, but no because they're not really adequate, they're not up to the task, or because they're not really admitting the scale of the problem. And we see this with climate change a lot. So one of the things that, you know, we've seen many of the think tanks do is, is the adaptation, we'll just adapt. Well, as John Holdren, the former science advisor to President Obama likes to say, at this point in history, adaptation is a euphemism for suffering, because we will be back. I mean, we're already adapting. Look at Texas. Texas is, a, is proof of the pudding. Those people are adapting and it is ugly. It is not a pretty picture. So the idea that adaptation is just like adjusting in some modest, you know, non-challenging way is really, in a way it becomes a kind of denial of itself because it, it's, it's saying, okay, yeah, I get it, there's climate change, but it's denying the magnitude of the problem. And at a certain point, if you deny the magnitude, you actually are denying the problem. And the opioid crisis is similar, right? You know, when that first started happening, there were people who said, oh yeah, there's been some abuse, you know, some doctors have overprescribed and there's always, you know, there'll always be people who abuse it, but, you know, we can handle this. And I don't, I, 
I, you know, I used to be tracking opioid prices so closely, and now it's been sort of swamped by COVID-19, which is another level of the tragedy that people who are dying and suffering from opioid addiction have now been sort of effaced by COVID-19. But the last I looked, it was something like 70,000 deaths. And again, completely preventable deaths. None of these people had to die. Um, so we have to acknowledge the magnitude of the problem because the scale of the problem then partly determines what the appropriate response is. So I'd say, so those, it's a long answer to your question, I'm sorry, but these are really complex, juicy problems, but I think humanists don't mind that. So, <laughs> so it's basically take it on board, find you know, a small government or solution or a solution that's kind of compatible with your ideology as much as possible, deny it or minimize the scale of the problem. I'd say those are the three major responses that I've seen. So you just mentioned the COVID crisis, and you you mentioned that we've you know five hundred thousand Americans have died, and uh, it you know this is not a disease that cares much about where you live or what your political party is or what you know what your what your job is or, um, and it's clear that the that there have to have been significant numbers of deaths among those Americans who are uh, arguing outside of grocery stores about wearing a mask. And I mean, I wanna be optimistic too, but when you, when you confront that kind of reality uh, and you still see this, you know, it's, it's, we're just asking you to put this mask on and it's not, it's not about infringing your freedom, it's about protecting all of us. I, I'm, I, that one really, it's a head scratcher for me. I just can't understand because the, the restriction on freedom is so minimal, but the benefit is so profound. What, what yes. do you... <laughs> Well, I agree. I mean, in some levels, on some deep, deep level, it's actually almost impossible to get your head around that a person could be so, I don't know what, I don't even know what the right adjective is, venal, uh, reckless, that not to have so little regard for their neighbors and friends and fellow human beings and little regard for themselves, I mean, this is a win-win thing because wearing a mask protects both you and the people around you. Although early on, the CDC advice on that was not so good and was not that clear. And they said it didn't protect you, it only protected. And I remember the time thinking that made no sense actually, because the lo logically it should protect you at least a little bit. But I think the best way to understand this, and again, this is a shameless plug for the new book, but if you just look at it in isolation, it is head scratching, right? It's completely perplexing. But again, this is why we need to have historical perspectives. But if you look at it in the broader context of anti-government ideology, then it's not so perplexing because the people who are refusing to wear a mask, it's not really about the mask. It's about not wanting the government to tell you what to do. And that's the ideology that Eric and I are talking about in this Magic of the Marketplace book, because the way that ideology works is to make the government the enemy, to say that the government is inefficient, that government is wasteful, government steals, you know, taxation is theft, uh, and then it takes away your freedom to boot. So there are a lot of people in this country who believe that. And if you believe those things, then it makes sense that if the government now tells you to wear a mask, you say no, because you hate the government and you see it as a threat. And so that's the ideology that we have to address. And that requires then kind of winding the tape back a bit and say, wait, wait, hold on a second. Why do we even have government in the first place? We have government to do things for ourselves that we can't do by ourselves, right? I can't build an interstate highway system. Or like I always like to say, I can change my light bulbs, but I can't change my electricity grid. 
And Americans, you know, Adlai Stevenson famously said the problem with Americans is they've never read the minutes of the previous meeting. I mean, you would be amazed how many Americans have no idea that it was the federal government that built the electricity grid. It wasn't the private sector. You know, that wasn't entrepreneurs. No, entrepreneurs brought electricity to cities, but it was the federal government that built a grid that brought it to people. And so the very people in Utah, Wyoming, or Nebraska, or Illinois who hate the government have somehow forgotten that it was the government that brought them electricity and public health and so and the interstate highways and so many other things. So we need to roll the tape back and say, wait a second, look at all the things that the government has done. And the internet, by the way, this all what's happening right now, like we all talk about Zooming um, and Zoom is obviously a good com company and I respect what they've done, but we are on an internet that was built by the US government with scientists funded by the US government. The private sector did not build the internet. They commercialized it, they made it better. So they get credit for that. But so we need to remind people of the reality of the truth of our history um, and that almost all the big and important technologies that we have today were some kind of mix of public and private, telephone, television, you know, you name it, radio. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of where the answer is, sort of reminding people why we have government. And, and one of the things I like to do, you know, and in the book, in the new book, we have this, uh, you know, the right wings are conservatives, they love to quote Adam Smith. I mean, Adam Smith has a whole discussion of how you need government regulation of banks. So why has that been expunged from the historical record? So the most fun part of this whole book, by the way, and it's been a tough book to write because it's a very ambitious book and we're trying to pull off something big and, you know, we may not succeed, but I figure what the heck, you get to a certain age, you have an endowed chair at Harvard, you know, what's the point of having an endowed chair if you don't swing for the fences, right? Um, but the most fun part of the book was writing the chapter on Adam Smith and going through the wealth of nations, looking for all the places where he talks about fairness and wages and the need to regulate banks. I mean, there's so many things in there where Adam Smith recognizes that, yes, you do need to have governance. Nobody's saying you can do this without government. What he's saying is let's stop being mercantilists. You know, can we remember that that's what the argument was actually about? And I don't know any progressive who's, who's arguing for the return of mercantilism. So, so Naomi, we're just about at the end of our time. Uh, and I want to just uh, ask a kind of curious or goofy question. I know from watching other interviews with you that one of your uh, career paths that you did not choose was to be a stand-up comedian. And it's already clear to me from our conversation, the importance and the value you place in humor as a as an educational tool. I mean, you've you've used it repeatedly in our conversation. Say, say a little bit more about the, the importance of, of uh, the humorous and humor in, in this world that we live and in, in the work that you do. Well, you know, it's funny you ask that because I don't think it's really a conscious thing. I mean, I, I'm Jewish. I grew up with a family where telling jokes was something that we did all the time. And it was considered good. Like a person should know jokes. And sometimes friends are surprised at how many jokes I know. But I was raised in a family where you made an effort to learn and remember jokes the way other people might make an effort to learn, you know, good table manners, right? Which are also good. And my family could have done better on that one. But, you know, but look, life is tough. And we face some really serious problems in this country. And we all need ways to deal with it. And I think there are many different ways that we can deal with the challenges that life faces. But humor is certainly one that is tried and true and has a very good track record. And so, and it's also a way you can connect with people. I mean, one of the things that's very cool about comedians, right? You could have a friend with whom you really, really disagree politically, and yet you might both like Robin Williams or you know whoever it is, right? And that's an amazing thing that humor has a capacity to bring people together. 
And I think it's particularly important for us eggheads, you know, I mean, you know, in some ways I hate that I'm a Harvard professor, right? Because it invites people to have all kinds of stereotypes about me. So whenever there's an opportunity to remind people that, yeah, I'm an egghead, I'm not ashamed to be an egghead. Uh, I'm not ashamed that I write books. I'm proud of my books, but I have a sense of humor. I ski, I canoe, I spend a lot of time outdoors, you know, like the stereotyping of people is always bad. And so again, I mean, humor is interesting because in a way it plays on stereotypes, but it also invites you to break them, right? So there's many, many reasons why. If you can tell a joke, you know, and it always helps, especially in public lectures, you know, if you can find a way. I always know if I'm connecting with my audience by how do they react to my jokes. And sometimes, you know, if I get a really serious audience and they don't get it, I just pause for a minute. And then I look at them and I say, that was a joke. And then I, then I get, and then they laugh. It's almost like they need permission to laugh because the topic is so serious. And I know that everyone appreciates the permission to laugh. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you for uh, all your thoughts on uh, climate change, on science, on the denial of science, and also on the value of humor. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. I've been speaking with Naomi Oreskes, the, Harl, the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University on March 12, 2021. She'll give a virtual lecture, Can Science Be Saved, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Crestman Lecture in the Humanities. Thanks so much for watching.